Blue Wire. Touchdown pass, 5-4-0 in the 5-0-4. Jackson takes it himself, looking dark back and forth. Oh, he broke his ankle. Watson stays on his feet, throws on the run, touchdown. Watson, a magician. Mahomes winds it up wide open. Welcome back here to another episode of the My Sports Update Football Podcast, brought to you by BetOnline.ag, your online wagering experts. I am your host, Ari Merov. We have two great guests here on this week's episode with ESPN's Teron Davenport and NBC's Joe Fan. as we talk about the Seattle Seahawks, the Tennessee Titans, the NFC West, the AFC South, and much, much more. But before we go to that, some thoughts on a couple of noteworthy topics around the NFL. First of all, the Miami Dolphins are making a quarterback change. It is now officially to a time in Miami. I've seen a lot of people questioning the decision that the Dolphins made here. Since Ryan Fitzpatrick has played good enough, the Dolphins are 3-3. Three and three. They are second um, in the AFC East. They are in good position if they keep on winning to even make the playoffs. Everyone loves Fitz. So why are they doing now? Many people are asking that question on Twitter, asking that question on sports television. Here is the thing that I feel people are forgetting and missing here. Last year, when the Dolphins made the trade to get Josh Rosen from Arizona, they traded a second round pick and a fifth round pick to get him on day two of the draft. Fitzpatrick still won the starting job and the Dolphins were never fully confident to go with Rosen and even when they ultimately did and let him start a couple of games, they were never sold on him as a starting quarterback, as the future of the team, and they eventually went back to Ryan Fitzpatrick for the rest of the season. They were never fully sold on Josh Rosen. When the Dolphins drafted Tua this past year, there was a lot of talk of redshirting this year. He's clearly proven that he's healthy. That's number one. That's the most important part in all of this. But unlike Josh Rosen, he has clearly proven to that coaching staff, to Brian Flores, to teammates at practice, the way he's handling himself around the team, that he is ready to take over the starting job. Now, history also shows that when teams draft a quarterback high, there's a very good chance not only are they going to start, but they are going to start for a large portion of the season. Look at this stat. Dating back to 2008, 16 out of the 17 quarterbacks taken in the top 6 of the NFL draft ended up starting 10 plus games in their rookie season. Jared Goff is the only exception and he got 7 starts his rookie season. So we've already seen Burrow. He's on his way to starting the entire year. We've seen Herbert. He's been starting six week, since week two. And now with Tua, if he plays every single game from here on out, he will be on track to start 10 games this year. When you take a quarterback early, you are going to play him and you're going to play him a lot. 
History shows that. The Dolphins are doing that now with Tua. Again, he's healthy. And the Dolphins are 3-3. Three and three. They have some winnable games on their schedule. The AFC East is actually wide open after seeing Buffalo play the last couple of weeks. After seeing New England play the last couple of weeks. The Dolphins have pieces on this roster. I think everyone is excited to see how Tua does. And also, you know, this isn't the first time that a team is benching a veteran quarterback who was playing well and going with a very high draft pick in his rookie season. If you go all the way back to 2004, the Giants started that year 5-2 and two with Kurt Warner. They then lost two in a row and they were 5-4 and four at their bye week. And they were still in a very good position to make the playoffs that year. And Tom Coughlin benched Kurt Warner and went with Eli Manning. Warner probably did not like the decision and he understood the decision and he was a great teammate. He was a great backup for Eli Manning. And, you know, if you look back at it, Eli Manning lost his first six career starts. It was not pretty when that happened. People questioned that decision every single game after every single loss with Eli Manning. Of course, now we know just how great Eli Manning was there in New York for many, many years um, after that. So Ryan Fitzpatrick will be the same exact thing. He will be a great teammate. He is exactly what the Dolphins need. Tua coming in at the end of the game versus the Jets and watching Ryan Fitzpatrick jumping up and down and getting excited for him that was just so awesome to see Fitz is a great teammate he is a great mentor and the Dolphins are lucky to have him with Tua we will get to see Tua in week eight against the Los Angeles Rams all right on to this week's episode we have two amazing guests here this week first up we have Joe Fan, who does a tremendous job covering the Seahawks for NBC Sports Northwest. We discuss the explosive offense with Russell Wilson. Is DK Metcalf already a top five wide receiver? This problematic defense, what needs to change? And the rest of the NFC West, the Cardinals, the 49ers, the Rams, they're all 500 or better. That division is the best in football as we all expected before the season started. And then we also have Teron Davenport, who covers the Tennessee Titans for ESPN. This will be his second time back here on the podcast. The Titans are also undefeated on the year, and they play the undefeated Steelers here this week. We talk about Derrick Henry, Ryan Tannehill, this coaching staff with Arthur Smith, Mike Vrabel, and his genius move from this past week to take a too many men on the field penalty and much much more but before we go to joe and Tehran, a quick word from our sponsors thanks to a lack of natural athleticism or commitment or overbearing sports parents fewer than one percent of one percent of one percent of people will ever get to play professional football but instead of entering the nfl they have joined another league the league of football watchers this football season will be different and Pepsi is here to get you ready for game day no matter how you watch. Week 7 of the NFL season is here and we have some amazing matchups here this week including the battle of undefeated teams with the Steelers and Titans and Jimmy Garoppolo returning to New England to take on the Patriots. Pepsi is the refreshment you need to power through any game day because Pepsi is not made for those who play the game, it is made for those who watch it. Pepsi, made for football watching. 
This week's episode is also brought to you by Indeed. Even though sports had a break earlier this year, your business did not. You have to keep on moving. And that is why hiring is more important than ever before. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other job sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need, you can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire that you need just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners here on the My Sports Update Football Podcast a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality people will get to see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Again, that is indeed.com slash bluewire, B-L-U-E-W-I-R-E. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31. All right, so let's get right into it now. Here is our first guest for this week, Joe Fan of NBC Sports Northwest. He joined me to talk about the Seahawks, this amazing offense, this problematic defense, and much more as they come back from their bye to take on the Arizona Cardinals this week. Here it is, my full discussion with Joe Fan. Joining me now here on the My Sports Update Football Podcast, he covers the Seattle Seahawks for NBC Sports Northwest, and he hosts the Talking Seahawks podcast. It is Joe Fan. Joe. Thanks for coming on. How are you? I'm doing great, Ari. I appreciate you in, uh, the invite. Uh, got a couple of days away for the bye week and excited to get back into it. Uh, Seahawks have 11 games left, and this should be a really fun team the rest of the way in what, you know, in my opinion, maybe the best division in football. Yeah, this division is um, – every team is 500 or better. No other division has that. In fact, every other division in the NFL has at least one team – with one win or less. So this NFC West is very exciting. Obviously, the Seahawks are 5-0. and They're off to a great start. Many of these power rankings have them on top. Let's start with the MVP of this team, the MVP of the league so far, Russell Wilson. There's, of course, the whole let Russ cook movement. My question for you is, how much has actually changed from last year when it comes to game planning and scheming and play calling? And then how sustainable is this high level of play from this offense? I think two parts there. Yes, it's sustainable. And then B, I do think there's been a noticeable shift in mindset. I think they have passed far more on early downs this year comparatively to years prior um, you know, whether in neutral situations in terms of, you know, score and clock and all of that, but also, um, you know, yeah, making sure that, you know, they're putting the ball in Russell Wilson's hands from the jump. And you heard Pete Carroll say when the Seahawks were really sputtering, you know, against the Vikings, they had that, that first drive of the second half, they went three and out on three Chris Carson runs. And Pete Carroll essentially said to Brian Schottenheim, like, hey, let's go, let's go, let's get this thing moving. Uh, essentially saying, like, let's just give the rock to Russ and, um, you know, make it happen. And I think Russ has to understand as well, you know, when he's, doing that he loves to go for kill shots and, and straight deep balls all the time and 
you know, the Vikings had a great game plan in terms of taking that away and trying to keep things underneath. And so there's an aspect of, you know, taking your time and picking your spots and, and taking what the defense gives to you. And Russ is so lethal at that when, when he's able to be patient and not just go for the home run every single time, but he's been tremendous. Um, you know, he is the MVP of the league right now. He's got 19 touchdowns, which leads the NFL. Um, he's always been one of the most efficient quarterbacks in football. Um, his, t- his touchdown percentage right now of 11.2% is just absurd. So, um, you know, I do think it's sustainable. I think when you have, when you have weapons like Chris Carson, DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, Greg Olson, the offensive line has been vastly improved, uh, especially in terms of pass block win rate. So this is a, a juggernaut offense that, you know, is, is championship ready. Um, and they're going to be, you know, tasked with carrying a, a more subpar defense throughout the season. Yeah, and you mentioned Wilson leading the NFL in touchdown passes with 19. That is despite the fact he's already had his bye week. Other quarterbacks in the NFL have played one more game. He's completing 73% of his passes, and I think it's it's safe to say that he is number one in the MVP conversation at this point in time, especially after we got to watch Josh Allen and Aaron Rodgers this past week. You also mentioned those weapons he has there. I want to talk about DK Metcalf. I've said it before here on the podcast that him dropping to 64 in the draft, it probably sucked for him, but landing in Seattle with Russell Wilson was such a perfect fit. Is it crazy to call Metcalf a top five wide receiver in the NFL right now? I haven't said it yet. I haven't, but it's starting to feel like he is trending towards that upper echelon. I think he is trending towards that upper echelon. And here's the thing. There's so many good receivers in the NFL that you could come up with a list of five names that really no one could argue, right? You can pick your flavor and say, you know, this guy, the other guy, whatever, right? But you pull out DeAndre Hopkins, Michael Thomas, Julio Jones, you know, whoever else, right? And uh, Devontae Adams, you can, you can go on and on. But I think w- w- the bigger point I would make is that there, the list of receivers who are definitively better than DK Metcalf is dwindling rather quickly. Um, so whether he's your guy or not, you know, the arguments against DK Metcalf's game, you know, are really shrinking. And so it's not just that he's has good numbers, right? He's got 496 yards and five touchdowns through five games, but he's been consistent. He's got at least 92 yards in every single game. He's scored in four out of five games. And the one game where he didn't find the end zone, he was tackled at like the one inch yard line against the Dolphins. On top of that, he's been clutch. The game winner against the Cowboys. He got the best of Stefan Gilmore, the reigning defensive player of the year in week two. In Minnesota, against Minnesota, he had three catches on that overtime drive, or not overtime drive, the, uh, the last minute uh, game winning touchdown drive. One catch was on fourth and 10. That really, Russ was just throwing a prayer down the left sideline for him, and he made a play for his quarterback. And then obviously the fourth and six uh, touchdown in the end zone, the six yard score. I mean, that, that's the trifecta, right? I mean, it's the big numbers, it's consistency, and, and, you know, that clutch factor. And DK has exhibited all three in just his second season. And so this guy is has the physical talent to be dominant. He's shown that. And, uh, and man, this guy is just skyrocketing right now. Yeah, and that's really the thing for me. You know, numbers is great, and, and that's one thing. But 
The things that he is doing late in games with Russell Wilson and then coming in clutch, that's a whole separate thing for me. You know, this duo is just tremendous and Metcalf is only 22 years old. He will be 23 in December. That is just another incredible thing about all of this. I mean, this duo, they're only going to continue to get better as they keep on playing. You know, a, a lot of Seahawks fans are wondering about Josh Gordon. Is there any word about him possibly returning? It's been really quiet. It's been oddly quiet. You know, I think every time Pete Carroll's been asked, he keeps telling us, I can't tell you, right? So <laughs> clearly he knows something about why this has been so prolonged. And maybe it's just that they're doing their due diligence to make sure he is on the right track. And, is, you know, this will be his, you would assume, final, 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 final chance. Um, and, you know, he's been a guy who has gotten so many second and third and fourth and fifth chances, um, you know. And so, you know, Josh Gordon's a fantastic teammate. You know, the Seahawks loved having him last year. He made some clutch plays. Um, but it is very clear that the league feels like they potentially have been burned by him one too many times in terms of reinstating him and continuing to have to go down this path. So it is curious how quiet it's been. There hasn't been anything leaked or, or uh, reported uh, or announced in regards to why this has been so prolonged. Um, you know, I think the details of what happened with the suspension last year um, are a little bit ambiguous, right? I mean, it's more than just the substances of abuse, uh, which it has been in the past, but also the performance enhancing substances. So really the double whammy for Josh Gordon. And so, um, you know, I think Seahawks fans are understandably anxious to, to find out what happens there. I think the Seahawks are understandably anxious to find out what happens there. But the reality is with, with the guys they've had, and, you know, David Moore has really had a nice season so far. Freddie Swain has been a little bit of a revelation, uh, the rookie out of Florida. And so and there's not, there's only so, so many targets to go around. I mean, fans are still wondering why Will Disley isn't getting more targets, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there are so many guys in the passing game, Chris Carson included, um, to where it's not like there's a, a huge, you know, share of reps and, and targets to go around, even when a guy like Josh Gordon or even Philip Dorsett returns. So would he be a boost? Yes, absolutely. But the Seahawks are certainly doing just fine without him. Right. You know, I found it interesting because we are seeing the NFL reinstate players, right? We just saw um, most recently, most notably, um, David Irving, who signed with Las Vegas today. So it's been really quiet what's going on there with Josh Gordon. We will continue to track that. Let's flip over to the defense now because it's been an issue. It's been a big issue there in Seattle. 471 yards per game is the number, which is just absolutely insane. How confident are you that this defense could turn it around now coming off a of bye? Well, it's interesting. You know, it's like they're historically bad in terms of yards allowed, but they're 22nd in points allowed. Their DVOA numbers are better, and their pro football focus, you know, overall team defense grades are were at least before the bye was like they were top 10, which is hard to believe. I think the reality is there's not many good defenses in the NFL right now. And so I think when you evaluate the Seahawks defense, you have to understand the landscape of the entire league and, and recognize that it's not just the Seahawks, you know, scoring numbers around the league are at record numbers so far. And so um, that being said, there's still plenty to adjust and Pete Carroll banks on this defense getting better as the season goes along. I think there's had a little bit of a learning curve in terms of how to best use Jamal Adams because he's such a fantastic blitzer and pass rusher, but they've never rushed a safety as much as they're rushing Jamal Adams. So when he comes back, they've got to find a way to balance utilizing that ability while not leaving 
gaping holes in the secondary that, you know, these explosives that plagued the Seahawks for their first three games of the season. It's been better in the last two. I don't think that's just a coincidence just because Jamal Adams has been out and that, you know, they hope they get him back either this week or next with that groin injury. But uh, I do think there's, you know, a bit of a learning curve with a player like him. Um, but at the end of the day, this is the defense that is never going to look dominant. They are going to give up their yards or going to give up their points, but they're, you know, again, for a second straight season, you know, they do a fantastic job taking the ball away and they've got 10 takeaways through five games. And that's huge, especially when Russell Wilson is so good at capitalizing on those takeaways for eight of the 10 takeaways for the Seahawks. Russell Wilson, in the offense has scored a touchdown immediately following that takeaway. The other two have been end of game situations to where they were taking a knee. And so every time the defense is adding a possession to Russell Wilson, the offense, those guys are capitalizing. And that's going to be the recipe, right, is make just enough plays, particularly in clutch time or crunch time. Um, to where you can get by and be passable and not be a complete liability. And so, you know, it's a nuanced conversation. Um, there's an understanding that, again, you know, what's happening in Seattle right now defensively isn't good enough and where they need to be. But um, I don't think it necessarily has to be wholesale changes and drastic improvements for this team to get to where it wants to go because it will be or has been and it will continue to be a team carried by the offense. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You know, the, the 471 yards per game would be a record if the season ended today. Spoiler, it does not. But 440 yards per game by the Saints in 2012 is the record for a full season. Um, you know, you mentioned Jamal Adams. I know he's missed the last two games. Pete Carroll didn't really give an update on exactly what's going on with him coming out of the bye. But I want to ask you, what did you think of the Jamal Adams trade when it originally happened? Because a lot of people said it was a lot of picks and all of that. And then secondly, now that he is in Seattle, how much of a difference has he made when he is on the field and even off of it as an energy guy? I think he's been huge. I think he fits in perfectly with the competitive nature and, you know, of Pete Carroll's program. And so, um, you know, I think he's a, he's a perfect addition. I do think he transcends what people call just a quote-unquote box safety. I think that's doing him and his skill set a disservice. You know, I think he's arguably a top 10 defensive player in football when he's healthy, right? He's, already, he's just 24 years old, and he's already, uh, you know, an all, a reigning all-pro. And so this is a special guy, and I think the price tag was probably a bit more than, you know, Seattle hoped to spend, especially when you see, you know, a guy like Yannick Ngakwe go for much cheaper um, but he is a, you know, they do view him as a transcendent player who's going to be, you know, a linchpin on their defense and a cornerstone for many years to come. And, you know, he has his own podcast and talks about how he hopes to stay in Seattle forever. And he feels like a changed person, both as a player and a person in Seattle and how much, you know, he's loved it. And I think it's really revitalized some of the teammates in terms of, you know, adding an extra voice of, you know, someone who's not afraid to mix it up and talk his talk. And, um, I think there's a place for that in Seattle because I think he knows the line, um, and Seattle is willing to give him that leash to be who he is. And um, there's a swagger that comes with that, that, you know, the Seahawks defense was kind of punchless last year. And so um, even if they're giving up yards and points, if there's, you know, even a semblance of an intimidation factor or a guy you have to be aware of on every play, that's going to help you. So um, I do think it was a fine trade. I think obviously you'd hope it would be a, a cheaper price tag, but to me, it's, I think we're all a bit jaded by, you know, the, the awful Bill O'Brien trades of giving away DeAndre Hopkins for free to where for most of the league, you know, acquiring blue chip talent is an expensive uh, to do. Um, and so that's what we saw with Jamal Adams trade. And, um, you know, hopefully he can get back on the field here soon and continue to develop. And, you know, I think Seahawks fans are eager to see how he continues to fit in. 
Ryan, you mentioned Hopkins. The Seahawks will get to see him this week when they face the Arizona Cardinals on Sunday. Let's talk about the NFC West as a whole because the next two games for Seattle are against these NFC West teams. They have Arizona, as I said, this week, then San Francisco after that. We know the Rams are 4-2. and two. Who would you consider to be the biggest threat to Seattle in this division? Because we just saw Arizona dismantle Dallas. The Rams, a lot of people didn't think they'll have the record that they have right now. And then, of course, San Francisco, a team that has had some struggles. But, hey, this is the team that made the Super Bowl last year. You know, it's hard because I think they all pose a big threat. I don't want me to sidestep the question. I'll, I'll explain further. But, you know, Seattle has trouble with all their divisional opponents. And, you know, they split against all three of them last year. And I anticipate them doing so again this year. Seattle's always had trouble stopping a Sean McVay defense or offense, sorry. Um, you know, I think the Niners are still the deepest roster while the Cardinals might have the highest ceiling. And so, um, you know, I don't think there's any doubt if the Seahawks played any of the three tomorrow that they'd go down to the final two minutes. Um, you know, so I think they're all a threat. I think the Niners are the safest bet um, given where they were last year, um, given the coaching staff, given they're getting healthy a bit and they have – you know, plenty of talent on both sides of the football, even with the Nick Bosa injury, which is so significant. You look at Chandler Jones, that injury is also huge. So um, the Rams are super bipolar. I think this, the, the Cardinals are a really scary team and might have the highest ceiling. Um, but I think the Niners are probably, just to give you an answer, I would say are the safest bet to be the biggest threat. Um, you know, if, if last Sunday was any indication that they're starting to figure this thing out. You know, I'm kind of curious to get your take on the playoff seeding situation. A lot of talk about this right now because the NFC East has all four teams below 500 right now. And there's a pretty good chance that one of these NFC West teams will be traveling to face an NFC East team that had a much worse record than them in the playoffs whenever that time comes. What do you think of the way it's set up? And should the league consider making a change to the system there? Well, it's funny because this is the same thing that happened last year when the Seahawks had to go play the Eagles in the wild card round. You know, it's so it's I get it. I think it's fine. You know, the Seahawks benefited from it in uh, 2010 when they beat the Saints in the wild card round, the famous Beastquake game. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think it it is the right way it should be. I just think you're going to have years where some divisions are really bad. In this case, it's two years in a row. It's the NFC East. Um, You know, maybe you have a clause in there, like if you can't get to 500, you know, then you have to travel. That would make sense. It'd be a, a fairly easy fix. It's not a hill I think I would die on because it does seem like it's such a rarity for a division winner to be so bad. Um, you know, so I, I guess, yeah, make eight and eight the threshold. And if you can't get there, then, you know, sorry about it. You got to go on the road to, a, you know, play a wild card team, um, you know, who gets to now host you as a division winner. But um, so I get it. I think it's, I think it's fine as is if they tweaked it and changed it, I would totally understand that. Um, but yeah, like I said, not a hill I would die on. Cause if you're a wild card team, the, the fix is easy. Just go in your division. And if you didn't do that, then I think it's fair to say you don't deserve to host a playoff game. Yeah. You know, I was actually looking at the Seahawks schedule before we got on here. The Seahawks have the quote unquote easiest remaining schedule from the from all the NFC West teams um, based on remaining opponents winning percentage because they have um, three more games against the NFC East they have games against Washington the Eagles and um, the Giants 
And then they also have a game with the 0-6 Jets, who are just atrocious right now. So if the Seahawks could win the games they are supposed to, they won't fall into that same trap last year of traveling to an NFC East team like Philadelphia. Um, last thing here before I let you go. You covered the 49ers before you got to Seattle a few years ago. Um, I want to ask you about Jimmy Garoppolo because there's so much talk about him and if he's the guy and if Shanahan trusts him and all of that. As someone who spent time with that organization, what do you think of him as a quarterback and his future in San Francisco? Man, you know what? I used to be all in on Jimmy. And I used to say, this guy's young in terms of being a, a starting quarterback in this league even though he'd been in the league and gotten to kind of shadow Tom Brady and all that. But, you know, I, you know, I kind of expected growth that isn't necessarily showing itself. And I really do think, especially his numbers were fantastic, um, you know, against the Rams on Sunday night, but at the same time to me, so much of that was Kyle Shanahan. And you look at Debo Samuel's receptions, all of them, all of his receptions were like behind the line of scrimmage. And so there's not much verticality in that passing game. And when you're banking on yards after the catch, and granted, they have guys who can do it, Raheem Mostert, George Kittle, Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, all those guys are, are just physical freaks and, and superior athletes who can do special things when they get the ball in their hands in open space. But relying on that is tough. And, you know, banking your offense on that is tough. Uh, banking on a creative running game to get you back and win the Super Bowl um, is tough. And so... You know, I, I think Jimmy is capable, but I don't think I, I look at him right now and say he's a surefire franchise guy that um, is going to be with your team for the next five, 10 years, right? So, you know, he's not in the category of, of Russell Wilson, of you know, Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, Aaron Rodgers, those guys. But, you know, is he in the mix of like aware of Jared Goff is, Ben Roethlisberger, all those sorts of things, you know? People love to hate on Jared Goff, and he is pretty atrocious when he gets pressure in his face, but that guy can also carve you up just as well as anybody in the entire league and has far more, you know, in my opinion, arm talent from a deep ball passing perspective than Jimmy. Um, so I think all of those things are big questions that remain to be answered uh, when it comes to Jimmy G. And, you know, I, I don't think it's a guarantee that he is, you know, long for San Francisco in terms of being their guy. Yeah, you know, it's there's still a lot of football left here, but I've always said I'm a believer of Jimmy Garoppolo. Yes, he hasn't been perfect, but there have been moments, especially last year, where, for example, the Saints game or the Rams game, where he did come in clutch. Or the Cardinals plays. games as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. I mean, I think he does get overly criticized, but, you know, people forget last year was also his first full year as a starter. And he was the quarterback for a team that made the Super Bowl. So say what you want. That is pretty impressive. Um, the Seahawks are scheduled to see him for the first time in two weeks, as I said before. All right, Joe, I want to thank you for coming here on the podcast this week. Everyone can follow you on Twitter. It is at Joe underscore fan and your work over at NBC Sports Northwest. Joe, thanks for coming on. All right. Thanks so much for the invite, man. I really appreciate you. Keep up the great work. So that was Joe Fan of NBC Sports Northwest. Special thanks to him for coming on the podcast here this week. Again, he does just an amazing job covering that team, as you could probably tell by just listening to him there on the podcast. Let's keep the talk here going with another undefeated team, the Tennessee Titans. They are also 5-0. I had Teron Davenport from ESPN on the podcast to talk about them and their hot start so far. So now here is my full discussion with ESPN's Teron Davenport.
All right, joining me now here on the My Sports Update Football Podcast, he covers the Tennessee Titans for ESPN, and he hosts the Talking with TD Podcast. Back here for a second time, it is Teron Davenport. Teron, welcome back. It's great to have you back on here. Hey, man, appreciate you having me on. I'm always good to jump on and talk some shit. Definitely. So this season so far, it's been such a roller coaster for the Titans, but here we are. They are 5-0 and after a thrilling win on Sunday over the Texans. Before I even get to the Titans as a team, I was curious to ask you, from a reporter's perspective, how has it been covering a team in a year like this? And then, of course, having this team have all those positive COVID tests a couple of weeks ago. How crazy has it been so far? Yeah, I mean, it's been really crazy because everything that you do is is done in a different form now just because you don't have that access directly to the players. And it's a bit more difficult, but you, you make do and, and you have to understand the, the circumstance. But everything has been fine. You know, it, it's like I said, it's different, but it, it's still an opportunity that a lot of people will want. So I'm not complaining. And you just, like I said, make do. Right. I mean, we're all just taking this day by day, not just the NFL world, but everyone in this country. But um, we got to adjust and adapt. And that's really what we've all been doing. But um, covering a team in a year like this, it's probably um, a bit tough, you know, because you really can't interact with the players the way you would want to. Anyways, let's get to the tight end and talk about what's going on in the field. I want to start with Derrick Henry because... What he did on Sunday, and really what he does every week, it's just incredible. He continues to have jaw-dropping plays every single week. A lot of people are talking about Russell Wilson as the MVP, and rightfully so. He is right now. But it's not crazy to have Derrick Henry in that conversation. Am I right on this? Because I feel like no one's talking about it. No, it's not crazy at all to put him in that conversation because he not only has an impact on the stat sheet, he is also someone that impacts the game with how they're able to open things up for play action. So it's not crazy. He's a guy that's really their their heart and, and soul of this team. They, they go as Henry goes. The last time a running back won MVP was 2012 with Adrian Peterson. Henry, as of now, leads the league in rushing with 588 rushing yards. That is despite the fact that he's already had his bye week. The next closest player is Clyde Edwards-Alaire with 505. So Henry has just been unstoppable. Here's the thing I wanted to ask you about him. So far this year, he has carried the ball 123 times in five games. That leads the league. That would put him on pace for 390 carries on the year. And that is after getting 303 last year, plus another 83 carries in the playoffs. Now, I'm not a big on-pace type of a stat person, but is that something the tight ends should be concerned about or worried about? Because it does feel like a lot. No, I don't think it's something that they should be worried about. And I, I you mentioned Henry as an MVP candidate, and, you know, Ryan Tannehill is in the mix, too, for what he's been able to do. And I, I think because of that, because of Tannehill and that passing game, you're not going to see Henry get 25 or more carries every single time. So he'll be all right. They'll continue to, to utilize him. And it's it's a balanced act. All 11, that's what Derrick Henry, Tannehill, and Coach Rabel will tell you, including Arthur Smith, too, the OC. So they're going to rely on each other. 
Interesting. So you brought up Arthur Smith there, and I want to talk about him, the Titans offensive coordinator. It's starting to feel like more and more fans, more and more people are starting to recognize that name, and they're starting to take notice of what he's doing there in Tennessee. What has he done since becoming the offensive coordinator that has worked so well? What is it that's so special about it? Because the Titans right now are number two in the league in offense, something that doesn't get talked about enough. But that offense is doing really well, and Arthur Smith is a really big part of it. Well, there are a lot of things. I think first and foremost, the balance that he's been able to to find. And you're seeing success in the passing game as well as the rushing attack. But when you look at the scheme and what he's done, he does a really good job of, of drawing things up. He could use his motion not only to get information, but at times it's to set things up. You, you see that in, uh, let me try to remember off the top which game that was. It was actually Buffalo, you, you saw it. And he had John o. Smith in the backfield and, and Derrick Henry as well. And then he he did a, he shifted from, um, 13 personnel, right, in, in like a closed formation. And despite having 13 personnel, he shifted to an empty set with John o. Smith lining up out wide. And he knew that having that shift was going to make it difficult for one of the DBs to get from one side uh, of the line to the other, or not the line, but the formation mm-hmm. to cover John o. Smith and they ran a quick one-step slant and it was a touchdown. You even saw it last week. He had John o. Smith and, and Derrick Henry um, in the backfield together. Actually, Derrick Henry was in the slot and John o. was in the backfield and they had a slant to A.J. Brown. So just that creativity that, that he's shown is something and just not wavering under pressure. There are times where this team is down by double digits. They understand that they're a running team, and they don't veer away from the run. They still go with it. That it, the, the panic is never there, right? And, and people mm-hmm. say you always have a plan until you get punched in the mouth. Well, this team has gotten punched in the mouth, and they stuck to their plan, and then they turned it around, and they were the one doing the punch. So, you know, we have two head coach openings right now in the NFL, and there are people who are already talking about Arthur Smith as a candidate for those openings and I actually saw a piece this morning from ESPN uh, Jeremy Fowler and Dan Graziano that Arthur Smith will be an option for teams who will have openings this offseason Sunday's game against the Texans um, a big win of course but it also came with a very big loss and I'm talking about Taylor Luan who tore his ACL he's out for the season I really don't think this injury is getting enough attention nationally like it's an enormous loss for Tennessee. Just explain how big of a loss Luan is in the passing and the running game, and then how confident are you with the pieces the Titans have right now on this roster to replace him? Yeah, it's a huge loss. They were averaging 3.9 yards per carry, which at that time was the most. Derrick Henry's 94-yarder, it kind of started to the right, so that boosted the average per carry. <laughs> uh, for the right side but before that that was the most that they had right left middle and a lot of that was because of Lewan. he's perfect for the zone scheme he's very athletic and he's a, a pretty solid pass protector as well uh, although if you go back and watch the game Whitney Merciless hit him with a ferocious yes. spin move on that 45 yard catch and run that that Ferster had but anyhow 
I think it's a big loss for them because it's not just on the field. He's one of those guys that brings a lot of energy. And I think that's important now when you have stadiums that aren't to full capacity and, and guys have to bring their own energy. Lawan did that for, for the team. So that'll be missed. And just as his presence in the locker room, he's clearly one of the leaders on that team. As far as the depth, I, Tyson Braille will probably be the guy at left tackle. This puts a lot on, on Isaiah Wilson to, to get ready because I think next man up is going to be him. Something should happen to San Breo or De Dennis Kelly, who's playing the right side. So that's obviously a big-time thing for the rookie right tackle. I think really it just comes down to scheme. And I, I saw it before in 2017 with the Eagles. They lost Jason Peters and a rookie by the name or second-year player by the name of Halapulavati Vaitai came in. And um, – it wasn't that good at first, but they managed to go on and win a Super Bowl. And it was because they schemed it up. And I think that's what Arthur Smith and that coaching staff could do. So uh, it, it's it's a big loss, but it's something that they can adjust. Yeah, I mean, it's such a massive loss. We know how important the left tackles are in the NFL. Taylor Lewan, one of the best in the NFL on the field as a player, also a very, very big leader on that team on the field. So it's going to hurt a lot. I'm curious to see how they do moving forward without him. I want to talk about Mike Vrabel, the Titans head coach, because what he did on Sunday, it went viral. He didn't tell you guys, he didn't admit to reporters that what he did was intentional, but... Him adding another player on the field to get that 12 men on the field penalty, that was clearly intentional, right? <laughs> I, I believe it was. And it, it was a masterful game plan, if you want to make it, a masterful flex uh, of using the, the rules to your advantage. And obviously, he's not going to come out and say that that's what, what he did, but it's not the first time he's done something like that. He, he did basically the same thing in 2018 against the Jets. You saw what he did last year with the um, Patriots, the, the Patriots, you know, to kind of make the clock go a little bit further. So it, it's not something new. And, I mean, hey, Leopard doesn't change his spots. And, and Mike Vrabel was a sly fox with that one. I mean, listen, if you're a football junkie and reading that and seeing what he did – that is just so awesome. It's so genius. It worked to perfection. And it really was one of the main reasons the Titans were able to get the ball back and score, tie the game, and then win the game. And it really makes me wonder now because, you know, we're always talking about the Shanahan's and the McVeigh's when it comes to top coaches in the NFL. And they're great. Don't get me wrong. But why do you think Vrabel is rarely mentioned in that conversation? Because it's all about offense. And... Look, I think McVeigh is, is a really good coach, but I have to say it's severely overblown. I mean, the guy gets up there and he tells you about the opposing team's defense and people act like, you know, he, he gave you a review of the 85 Bears. And it, that's not the case. So it, it, perception is always something that you have to take into uh, account and Everybody is looking for the next offensive genius. And that, that's obviously something that McFay has done a really good job about. I'm not going to call him the genius because a lot of the stuff they do is very simple and it's very similar. It's just in different formations. But I, I will say this about Mike Vrabel. If you watch what they do on defense, there's 
and even though that defense is not top notch, like they're not a top five defense right now, but if you look at some of the scheme as far as how they create pressure or create the illusion of pressure or how they force a quarterback to go to his bad side. These are all things that are examples of what he does really well. And a lot of people that aren't at practice don't see how well the drills that they do carry over to games. And I've, I've seen it multiple times. Corey Davis and his contested catches as something that they worked on all, all uh, camp and, and into the season. They call it ball disruption period. And in that same period, you have the defensive tackles, they're working on uh, realizing they're not getting home and matching hands with the quarterback and, and, and tipping the ball. And what ends up happening is they're, they're using a kickball and they're throwing it over the D-line. He has to jump up and, and knock it down. And lo and behold, Simmons has had two tip passes that have been very critical in games, one against, against the Jaguars, one against the Texans this past uh, week where mm-hmm. – they were going for two. So uh, that's something else that you have to mention. And having seen this this coaching staff each day go to work and do what they do, I think it's easy to say they're among the best coaching staffs in in the league. And Mike Vrabel was among the best head coaches in the league. Yep, and I've said it before and I'll say it again. The Titans are one of the least respected teams in the NFL, whether it's their coaches or their players. People are still not buying in on them. Even after last year's amazing run, this year's hot start, there are people there who still believe Ryan Tannehill is a fluke. There are players on this defense people probably never heard of who are playing really, really well. There are coaches on this coaching staff who deserve more respect. It's all totally true. I don't think it's stopping anytime soon, but the Titans are for real. They've proved it over and over again, and it's not stopping anytime soon. What has impressed you the most so far after five games? Even after the COVID that happened, they're still winning. What has been the most impressive part so far after five games? Well, it's just as a unit, I did not expect them to come out and play the way that they did against Buffalo after having all that time off and and time away from the facility. It was almost like as if the Bills were the team that were in the Titans situation and the Titans were in the Bills situation. And I I think that's just – it's impressive. It's a testament to the coaching staff, to the players. They were so locked in. And I think that's what impressed me the most. They were able to take adversity and and use it to the point where it elevated their focus and elevated their level of play. And anytime you see that, you have to shout it out. And uh, that's why I'm mentioning that before anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- this team has put up 42 points in back-to-back games. And this week, they're getting the Steelers. And... That Steelers defense, it's a matchup between two undefeated teams, but that Steelers defense is arguably the best in the league. How do you see the Titans offense matching up against this defense? I mean, I think it's safe to say they're not going to put up 42 points again. Oh, it's very safe to say that. It's going to be tough. And in my film study this week, I focused so much on that front with Cam Hayward and Stephon Tewitt, and you got Dupree and, and, and T.J. Watt, they're, they're something else. But Hayward specifically is a load of problems. I think really the area, there's, there's two things I, I see where they could somewhat attack. And the first is Steven Nelson. I think they do a good job of hiding him, especially because of the pressure that they get up front. Blitzing Mike Hilton, 
that helps things out a lot. And if teams could buy the time, they could pick on 22. So that's something I, I think should be involved in the game plan. And then Devin Bush is out. Mm-hmm. You got Robert Spillane in. And if you could create matchups where you get Jonu Smith or Anthony Ferkser against the Steelers linebackers, that's going to be advantage Titans. And it just so happens that the Titans have done a lot with the tight ends in the red zone. These guys have – I want to say seven of Tannehill's 11 or so touchdown receptions have gone to the tight ends, and that's specifically in the red zone. So it's no, there's nothing new to the Titans to, to go to those tight ends, and I think that's going to be really big. Ironically, Arthur Smith is a former tight ends coach, so it's only right that he gives his former guys in selectively a, a – a bunch of opportunities. Yeah, and Frickser is somebody who I actually saw um, some people in the media hyping up last week, and that was before um, before John o. Smith even got hurt. So he's another one of those underrated players who are on this team who could have an impact. And of course, you mentioned Devin Bush. I mean, such a brutal injury, such a key player, a sideline to sideline linebacker, a player who was really developing nicely and was emerging as a very, very uh, vital part of that defense, of course. Last year's first round pick, they traded up to get him. A very big loss there in Pittsburgh. Last one here before I let you go. When you were here on the podcast in the offseason, I asked you which team in the AFC South is the biggest threat to the Titans and you said the Colts and that appears to be true they are 4-2 and two so far but they've had their struggles this year are you buying the Colts? I think because of that defense you still have to and that defense is always going to keep them in games I said it, putting Buckner in there as that 3 tech is going yeah. to take that defense to another level but I didn't mention Julian Blackman, and that dude right there is playing some serious football. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes a guy gets hurt and the next one steps up, and uh, that's what you see with Malik Hooker going down. Julian Blackman, the the focus shifted to him, and he's taking advantage of it. So I, I think the Colts are for real. Yeah, I mean, Blackman is a, is a legit ball hawk. I mean, as a third-round pick, he, he reminds me a little bit of what happened with Anthony Harris last week, in, in, sorry, last year in Minnesota, where he came in and just took advantage of his opportunity and was lights out. Here, a rookie, of course, but he's just been unbelievable so far for the Colts. The Titans, however, will not see the Colts for another four weeks, so there is still time until we see those two teams together on the field. All right, Teron, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast this week. Everyone can go check out your podcast, Talking With TD, wherever you listen to your podcast, and go follow Teron on Twitter. It is at tdavenport underscore NFL. Teron, thanks for coming on. Yeah, for sure. Appreciate it. And there's a live show as well that's, that's put on the podcast. It's with Nate Washington, former Titans and Steelers receiver, so make sure you tune into that also. So that was Teron Davenport of ESPN. Special thanks to him for coming back here on the podcast every time he comes on. I mean, he just has some some great insight on the Titans. He breaks down film, does a great job of that as well. So special thanks to him for coming here on the podcast. Looking ahead here to week seven and some of the other games that we have. Of course, we know about Steelers Titans. We talked about Cardinals Seahawks a little bit before. But even besides that, 49ers Patriots, Jimmy Garoppolo, returning to New England for the first time to see Bill Belichick for the first time since he got traded away. 
Buccaneers Raiders. Raiders coming off a big win over Kansas City. Now they have Tom Brady who is coming off that huge win over Green Bay last week. A Sunday night game in the new Las Vegas Stadium. That is a great game. Packers-Texans. I mean, the Texans are 1-4, but Deshaun Watson has been heating up. Brandon Cooks has been heating up. That offense is starting to get it together, and uh, it's been fun to watch them. And now you get Rodgers versus Watson. That's a great game. You have also, I mean, as crazy as it sounds, the two NFC East games that we have here this week, Giants-Eagles Thursday night and then Cowboys-Washington on Sunday, can one of these teams separate themselves from everyone else and actually play a good game of football? I'm curious to see, could the Giants show something? I mean, they have been playing better each and every week. I know they've had some struggles, but it looks like they're playing hard for Joe Judge. The Eagles and Cowboys are dismantled by injuries. Washington, Kyle Allen hasn't been um, the quarterback they were expecting when they made that move. So I want to see if any of these teams can actually put up a great performance. And then the Monday night game, Bears and Rams, if you would have told me when the season started that in week six, the Bears would be 5-1 and one, and the Rams would be 4-2, and two, many people would not believe you, but both these teams have been pulling it out and winning games. So that's a really good matchup as well there to end off the week on Monday Night Football. So the season marches on. We have some amazing games here on the slate. We're all looking forward to it. So far, so good around the NFL as we near the halfway point of the NFL season. The trading deadline is coming up in under two weeks. So we'll see if we have more stuff going on. As I said last week, there are people who think there won't be many trades because of the situation with the protocols where if you trade for a player, they have to go through five or six actual uh, six actually consecutive negative days of COVID tests before entering the building. Other people think since the cap is expected to go down next year that some teams will be looking to unload contracts. So we'll see what happens there. That does it here for this week's My Sports Update Football Podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for downloading. I really appreciate it. If you have not done so yet, go make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. By you doing that, a lot of other football fans just like you will be able to find this podcast. I am your host, Ari Merov. I'll be back for another episode next week for another special guest. Until then, have a great rest of your week. Stay safe and enjoy week seven of the NFL season. This is Greg Olson, inviting you to check out my new Blue Wire podcast, TE1, where I interview tight ends throughout the history of the NFL who have helped revolutionize the position. TE1 is presented by the Chevy Silverado. The Silverado is all about grit. It's strong and dependable, exactly like playing tight end. Just like the incredible players we sit down with on the podcast, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. Strong, advanced, and dependable. Download TE1 today wherever you listen to podcasts.